when I did become the pastor six years ago, one of the things I, uh, I asked <clears throat> Vicki Vaughn, the principal of our school, is I said, I want to be able to interview the new hires, new teachers, new staff coming on. And I had a number of reasons, uh, not all which are immediately visible, but I had a number of reasons and still have a number of reasons for, for doing that. And um, there were some things I wanted to know because I, I understand that the people we have on staff at our school and our daycare and our preschool that's taking place right now, I interview those uh, young ladies who are taking care of your preschool children right now. I want to know because uh, something about their spiritual journey. Tell me, how did you come to know Jesus? I want to know because you have influence over our students and the, the students that God has given us um, uh, has God has given us into our care during the time that they are here. I want to know. Tell me something. The question usually goes like this: Tell me something about your spiritual journey. Now, fortunately, and I'm glad to report that. Most of the time, what I get is a story of glorious conversion, which says, I was this before Jesus, but then after I met the Lord, this is what took place. Or they can give uh, certainly a wonderful testimony. You know, the Scripture tells us that you are, you are to be able to give an account for the hope that lieth within you. And that's what I'm looking for. Give an account. What has the Lord done in your life? Tell me something about your spiritual journey. I want you to turn to Genesis 28 today. And I want to just share a thought with you before we bring the service to a close. You know, you can ask that question of, um, of people. Tell me something about your spiritual journey. Tell me something about uh, when you met the Lord or this. And sometimes the answers can come back like this. Well, my parents were Catholic. Or my grandmother, my grandmother prayed for me. That will be their answer when you ask about their spiritual journey. Or, or they might even say, you know, I grew up in, I've had this, I grew up in a Jewish home. Or... Here's one. I was raised in, in church. And all of these answers and more are some common things you can hear when you ask somebody about their encounter with, with Jesus. But the bottom line is this for anyone. Have you experienced Jesus for yourself? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? I'm happy about your grandmother's experience. I'm glad she prays for you. I'm, I'm thrilled that your parents are committed to Christ. But do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus, not through your parents and not through the church you were raised in, but have you encountered Christ for yourself? I've seen this, and I know, I know you've seen it too, that some folks make the mistake that, of thinking that because they're in the midst of others who know God and others who are uh, serving the Lord and they, they see the blessing that comes from others living the Christian life and they're somehow in the, in the midst of that, maybe even sitting here this morning in a church service or in that culture. Some folks have made the mistake that because they see blessing in others or touch it in some form in others and that they are living the blessing of God themselves and yet they are not right with God. Simply because they're living in a culture or living in an environment of other people's blessing. Do you know that you can be blessed and still not right with God? It's true. There are multiple instances of this in the Bible where there were households where sinners were, were blessed just because a godly person was in that household. Let me give you a couple of them. It was Joseph in Potiphar's house that brought blessing to Potiphar's house. We've talked about that. When Jacob was with Laban, Laban, an idol worshiper, recognized that he was being blessed because Jacob was with him. And when Abraham was with Abimelech, Abimelech understood that he was being blessed because of Abraham. And that principle of being blessed or blessing kind of 
slopping over on everybody else, there's got to be a better word than that, that's so pronounced and so obvious that Scripture tells us that a city can be blessed when the righteous are in it. How many are thankful for that? And it goes on further and says, a nation can be exalted when the righteous are there in the midst of it. And I think it's important that we understand this and that the importance, it's, it makes such a huge statement about the importance of God's blessing. Why do you think we prayed for the teachers last week? We did that. And why do you think we pray for business people at the beginning of the calendar year? It's because the blessing of God is not to be taken lightly. Somebody give me an amen. The blessing of God should never be taken lightly. The favor of God, God, heaven smiling on you, whatever terminology you want to give to it, it can never be taken lightly. And blessing upon you can have impact upon other people. That's why we prayed for those teachers last week. We want the blessing of God to be upon them because we want it also to be upon our students who are here Monday through Friday. But don't make the mistake of thinking that you being blessed means that you have God in your life and all is well. That's a mistake some people make in their thinking. Now, we know that Scripture says this, that God reigns on the just and the, and the unjust. And so, don't miss this, that when God reigns upon the unjust, and we see that happening, sometimes people say, you know, we're struggling and struggling, and, 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 and yet look at my neighbor. He's being blessed, 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 blessed. And he's as unjust as he could possibly be. But when God reigns upon the unjust, it doesn't mean that, that you're amazing. It means God's amazing. I don't think I got that over to you very well. God can do incredible things, and he is not intimidated, blessing even those who have cursed his name. Just singing songs in church as wonderful as that is, and as much as we enjoy that corporately here, that's not necessarily experiencing God in your life. Just being in church, as great as it is that you are here today, and maybe you're even faithful in your attendance, that is not the same thing as experiencing God in your life. Being raised in church, as wonderful as that is, by God-fearing parents, that is not experiencing God for you. Because none of that, dear friend, is transferable unless you have an experience with the living Lord Jesus. It has to be you touching God. You must experience Him for yourself. That's the way this works, and it's the only way that it works. Far too many people today confused the way they were brought up or even being brought up in church with whether or not they've truly experienced God. It breaks my heart when I see that. Tell me something about your spiritual journey. Well, my parents took me to church. Great. Tell me something about your spiritual journey. Well, my grandmother prayed for me. Wonderful. Tell me something about your encounter with Jesus. The question is, do you know Christ? Here's, here's a reality. Do you know that you can be in church and not in Christ? That is entirely possible. We have to be careful because many people have gotten angry with God because of the church. I know that. And haven't we all heard this? Well, I, I tried God, but that didn't work for me. And all I have to say is, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, 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 hold on. You can't truly try God, and that doesn't work for you. You may have tried the church. You may have tried Sunday school. You may have tried a pastor. 
You may have tried a denomination, but the Bible makes it clear that whoever believes in Him will never be disappointed. Now, it's true, there is no one in the world who fathers a larger dysfunctional family than God, the Father. How many know that you are in the largest dysfunctional family on the planet? Let me see your hand if you know that. Some of you are too embarrassed to say it. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a free pass. Some people get frustrated in the church when you're sitting in the midst of this place and they say, I just can't seem to find anyone that I have anything in, in common with. And, and, but we've got to, understand, got to understand who God has brought together in this place. To say that you have nothing co- in common with anybody in this place is telling us clearly, uh, uh, let's see, Dan, how can you say this in a better way? That path wasn't going to work very well. For you to say that you don't have something in common with people in the church is, is telling us you are making it very clear that you're still making this all about you. The issue is that God has something in common with each of us. The church is God's thing. It is not your thing. The church is His and it belongs to Him. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. And when suddenly we decide that we're not going to go to church because we're not connecting with anybody and I'm not finding anything in common with anybody, let me just say it this way. You know what? God does not pre-select people to be in His church who necessarily have an ability to get along. You mean to find something else to preach today? You're not digging this, I can tell. Understand something. If you choose church based upon people that you have stuff in common with, you're wanting a club, not a church. This is the church of the living God. If you want to be people with people with whom you've got all things in common, then go get a Harley. Join fantasy football. This is the church. It's messy. And yes, we have problems. But it's the church. It's his church. And regardless of what takes place with all of our humanity that's running around the place, we still have him. And he's the head of the church. And that's the difference. And to that end, it doesn't matter what we have in common. What matters is that God has something in common with each of us, and it's his son, Jesus Christ. Somebody say hallelujah. Here's the truth. People will disappoint you. Pastors will disappoint you, without a doubt. Choirs will disappoint you. Churches will disappoint you. Denominations will disappoint you. But when it comes to Jesus, you can count on him every time. He will not disappoint you. Christianity is not what you do. It's what God does in us and what he does distinctively and uniquely within each of us. And that's why this old statement is true. That is this. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Children who have been birthed by the Holy Spirit. Which tells us that you have to experience God for yourself, not through somebody else. Like many of you, I was raised in a Christian home. And there are both advantages and disadvantages to that. 
The advantage is this, and I really, for a couple things I'm going to say in the next 15 minutes, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully and hear my heart in this because I think the Lord has something for us today. The advantage is this, when you've been raised in the church, that you get a head start on God. That's true. You get to hear about him from an early age. Your parents you get, are praying for you, hopefully. You learn to pray over meals. You learn Bible stories in Sunday school. You learn what it is to be faithful to church. You learn what it's like to sing the hymns of the church. I was raised like that. And, and you know, you may have an issue with hymns. When I was a kid, they sang all kinds of things. And I had the hymnal. A hymnal is this book that has songs in it. I know some of you have no idea what that is. And I sang the hymns of the church, and I would sing lyrics that, you know, I could read it, and I could kind of sing along. I knew the melody, but, but it meant nothing to me because I was too young and stupid to know what it meant, to be honest, too immature to understand what it meant. But here's what being raised in church did do for me. I could sing, a, I could read that song, and I could be singing these words that didn't mean anything to me because I hadn't, didn't have enough life experience for them to mean something to me. But I could look over at at, at Sister, Sister Jackson, tears rolling down her cheeks. And I, I would sing along and I would watch her. I thought, my goodness, this sure meant something to her. This has impact to her. And because it has impact to her, it had impact, impact to me. And so I was at least smart enough to realize that someday I'm going to understand what that means. And someday that's going to mean something to me when I sing, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, awoke to follow thee. Amazing love, how can it be? I didn't understand that at seven, eight years old. But I watched Sister Jackson cry as she sang those, those lyrics. Or I, I watched uh, Brother Wilson over to my left always stood over here. He would sing something, hands in the air, obviously deeply in worship, thankful to God for what God has done. So you get a head start on all that when you're raised in church, and it's a wonderful thing. I was raised like that, raised on altar calls, testimony services, tarrying services, revival services. There was no Netflix or iTunes or Blockbuster video, which now is gone. All we had was ABC, NBC, and CBS which went off at midnight with this star-spangled banner. How many remember the days? Wow. But here was the truth for me. I was in church every Sunday night. Can I get a witness? If it was on TV, on ABC, NBC, Sunday night, came on Sunday night, I never saw it. Didn't have a clue. And, and there wasn't an option about going to church on Sunday night in the house that I lived in. It would have been easier to, uh, to have a conversation with my dad about the family becoming communist than it would be to actually say, we're not going to go to church. I mean, it was that unthinkable. And so that means that there's all kinds of things that, that I never saw. I, I never saw the Wizard of Oz. I still haven't seen the Wizard of Oz. I know it's got something to do with a guy in some tin can and a yellow brick road and, and snapping heels together. That's all I know about it. Isn't that sad? That's all I know about the because it came on Sunday night because I was in church. I never saw the Ten Commandments until the part where the sea parted. We got home by then. I was just praying church would get over with in time so I could see the sea part. And I, were there miracles that took place before that? I wasn't sure because I never saw it. I never saw any of that stuff. But the head start I was given was to learn how to be in church, and I was so, I'm so grateful for that today. Now, please don't misunderstand me. 
There is tremendous value in the head start you are given by being raised in a Christian home. You do get to hear incredible testimonies. You do get to hear about the things of God. You do get exposed to amazing people of faith, many of which are sitting in this congregation today, and so much more that is of incredible value. But there's also a disadvantage to being raised in church. Sometimes people feel cheated, that they didn't get to experience what other people experienced. Sometimes they feel like I've run into plenty of folks who felt like, you know, I was raised in church. We didn't get to do this. We didn't get to do that. You know, when we had the, the part of school in elementary when we were learning to square dance, I had to take a note and say, I don't square dance in front of people. I might do it at home, and I could sure boogie to an Andre Crouch record in the basement of my home, but I didn't do it in front of anybody. It's the way it was. So there's all kinds of things we didn't, we didn't get to do. But let me make it clear. Though there is advantage to being raised in a Christian home, there is plenty of advantage to be raised in a Christian home. It is no guarantee that you will become a Christian. And one of the saddest things is to be raised in a Christian home and never experience God for yourself. Oh, I want to do a little tiny detour. I promise to be quick about it. I interview and talk with lots of people. <clears throat> and many of these teachers I've told you that, that I've interviewed uh, for faculty members for the Christian school, it is most often that I will hear a story or a testimony like this that says, uh, if they were raised in church, not all of them were, but if they were raised in church, um, you know, I had God-fearing parents, and I did this, I did this in church. And <clears throat> but then usually there'll be some point that says, but when I became an adult, there was a certain wrestling for my faith. How many of you know what it is to wrestle for the faith? There's a certain, there was a certain thing that took place. And I want to be very careful to say, oh, parents, raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he, it will not depart from it. You need to give them every bit of Christian influence, godly, faithful conduct that they can ever possibly see. It needs to come from you. Oh, it needs to come from you. You need to give them all of that. They've got a much better shot at becoming a Christian if you will do that and living a godly life. But I know this. It is most often a child may come to, I accepted Jesus into my heart, six years old, in the basement, in the primary class. I could take you to the little chair if it was still there where I accepted Jesus. I remember praying the prayer, remember everything about it. And I am so thankful for that. But as a young adult, when all of a sudden I was not under the wing of my parents and this was not a thing about pleasing parents and I don't believe that's why I made that decision to start with, but I was certainly under their influence and it was not about that. It was when out on my own, Lord, it's me. It's not my brother, not my sister. It's not my mama, not my daddy. It's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. And there comes that critical point, which is why if you, parent or grandparent, have a young adult in your life, um, child or a grandchild that is in that early 20s, late teens, early 20s, that is a critical, critical stage of life where they are probably wrestling with their faith now as an adult. Hopefully some of the wires are starting to get connected that have been kind of loosely sitting around in their head for a while. As a teenager, those wires are sticking out everywhere. Have you noticed? 
But then some of those things start to get connected. It also happens not only physically and emotionally and intellectually. It also happens spiritually. That all of a sudden, they've got to answer the questions that have maybe been hiding in their minds the entire time. They might have been hidden to you. Might have been beneath the surface. But they've got to begin to find those things in God. It's so critical. Well, let me take you to a story in the Bible of someone who went through this very situation. And we'll close in just a few minutes. He had amazing parents, grandparents. Uh, with no experience himself with God until later on the chapter that we're going to look at. His name is Jacob. You know exactly who I'm talking about. Genesis 28 is Jacob's experience with God. Now think about it for a second. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Had a famous grand. His grandfather is Abraham, for crying out loud. That's grandpa. That's who comes to your house when you're little and eats with you. Abraham. And, and, and he's, he's the man who had your dad, Isaac, by a miracle. You know, if you're, if you're Jacob, when your dad is Isaac, who was birthed when his father, Abraham, is 100 years old, and, and, and grandma was 90 years old, just imagine what mealtime looks like around that house. Did I ever tell you, did I ever tell you, grandson, when your grandma was 90 and I was 100, and she looked so fine one night, and... Strike that part from the tape. It just kind of came out. And we had your father. And Jacob says, yes, I've heard it. I've heard it a thousand times. I've heard it. I've heard it. And then his dad. Did I, did I ever tell you the story when Grandpa took me up the mountain to kill me and he had the knife raised and then the angel came? And do you know that if that angel hadn't come, you wouldn't be here, Jack? That's the way this goes. And can't you hear Jacob? Yes, I've heard this. I've heard this. I've heard it all my life. Abraham is your grandpa. Sarah is your grandma. Isaac, the miracle child, is your dad. Poor Jacob doesn't stand a chance. Well, I couldn't help but think of a similar situation, the ultimate. Think of James, the brother of Jesus. Imagine being raised in the same household with the Lord Jesus himself. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Why can't you be like your brother? He never talks back. His room is always clean. His food is pre-blessed. It's the same kind of a deal. So here's Jacob thinking, how can I keep up with Grandpa? I mean, kids for centuries will be singing that stupid little song, Father Abraham. I don't even know the rest of the song. How can I keep up with my dad, Isaac? That's... What you find in this young man who begins to find himself at the beginning of Genesis 28. What's happened is, we touched on it last week, Jacob has just cheated Esau, his brother, from his birthright. He then cheats his brother again from the prayer of blessing from their, their father Isaac. And so, things aren't perfect in this home like they are in your house or my house. There's relationship issues. There's been lying, cheating, conniving manipulating going on. I know that doesn't happen in Texas, but that's what happened here, okay? Things weren't perfect. And now his brother obviously has a grudge against him. He's, the Bible says he's out to kill him for what he's done. And Jacob finds himself to be a man who has lied, who's been a conniver, who's cheated. He's uh, listened to his mom's bad advice. She told him to go to Uncle Laban's house 550 miles away just to get away from your brother and things will blow over. 
And we know what a mess that turned out to be when the deceiver, Jacob, was deceived himself. And you, you know that story. And now his life is in turmoil, though he has been raised in a home of miracles. Had him happen right before his eyes. Raised in a family of miracles. Raised under godly leadership. Raised with a heritage that any one of us would, would have wanted. And yet here is a young man who in the midst of all that... All of that stuff, all of that happening, what incredible heritage, what a legacy. He has never experienced God. Never experienced who God was. And something happens to him as he's running from his brother who's now out to kill him. He's running from his issues, running from his problems, but he has no idea that while he's running away from his issues, he does not realize he's running straight into the arms of God. And here's the story, Genesis 28, starting at verse 11. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. We know he's running from his brother. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway, ascending, descending. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, the west, the east, the north, the south, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have everything finished, giving you everything I have promised you. I will not leave you. I will not leave you. I love that. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid, and he said, what an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gate to heaven. This, Bethesda, is Jacob's encounter with God. He's away from grandpa. He's away from dad. He's now facing an encounter with God that is his and his alone, and I want you to see that is happening at the worst time of his life because of issues he had caused and he had created. In fact, when he gets to Uncle Laban's house being deceived by his uncle, he goes back to this moment and he mentions what his life was like when he had this encounter with God. Genesis 35, just look at the screen. We are now going to Bethel where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer to God when you were in distress? How many of you are thankful that God can answer a prayer when you're in distress? He knows how to answer a distress call. And he has been with me wherever I have gone. You know what he was saying? That when I met God, it was one of the worst, if not the worst, moment of my life. He didn't know God. He had no experience with God. He didn't even know that God loved him and wanted him. Now I'm going to step into a little bit of a fragile area here, which may be controversial for some. I'm sure my inbox will fill up this afternoon. That's great. Hallelujah. And you don't have to agree with this. But here's what happens. He meets God while on a journey of running from stuff that he caused. Lied to his father. Cheated his brother. And instead of making things right, instead of going back and cleaning up the mess that he caused, 
His mom gives him bogus advice and says, hey, just, just go away for a few days. Go to your uncle's house. And, you, you, and you know, just let some time pass and, 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 your, and your brother's attitude will it'll, it'll blow over by then. It's like saying time heals all wounds. And I want to tell you that's not true. Repentance heals all wounds. There has to be apology. There has to be humility. There has to be a spirit that says, I know I was wrong in this. And right in the midst of all the sin of lying, manipulating, pride, whatever you want to put in the package, all of his sin, hear me carefully, got him to the place where he encountered God. All of the junk he did put him in the position for him to have an experience with God. Now, there's a verse of Scripture. I heard it on the screen just a few minutes ago. It's one of my favorites. But I've, uh, I've had my own wrestle with this Scripture. You know it well, where Paul tells us in Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things, what? Work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Well, the... The conflict in me in that scripture has been the way I've always understood it and the way I've come to understand it living a little bit more of life. And, and the problem is this. It's, it's two words in there. For we know that all things work together for good. Now let me tell you how for years, most of my life, I interpreted that. All things meant, here's, all, here's the all things that God used to come together for my good. It meant my trials. It meant tribulations, meant any persecution I thought I was facing. It, it, it meant uh, he would take satanic attacks and use that for my good. It, Satan come against me or, or battles that I was facing. God could take all of that, bless my sweet little heart, God could take all of that and work it together for good. But here, here's the revelation I've had about this scripture, and I, I've come to believe this, that all things actually means all things. Isn't that a stunning revelation? And I've determined that all things could even be my prideful, sinful decisions. And God finds a way to work out my dumb, prideful, sinful decision. And because we serve such an amazing God, because we serve a God who, for whom nothing is impossible, He basically says to you and to me, I'm going to find a way to bring you back home even through the dumb stuff that you've done called disobedience. How can I say that? Look at what God did. God took Jacob's lying, conniving, manipulation, and all that junk. And he says, I'm going to use even that to get you on the path back to me. You know what this says to me, church? It says that God is not inhibited or intimidated by anything. And he doesn't look at you this morning and say, oops, you sinned. Now you're in trouble. And also from what we've learned from this passage, he doesn't leave you even in the midst of your sin. Somebody ought to say, thank God. He's going to find a way to use that part of the all things to get you back to him. Now listen to me carefully. Oh, listen to me carefully. This is not a license for you to go out and just do whatever you want to do. 
This is not permission for you to adopt some demeanor that says, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do, so I'll just do whatever I want to do. No, no, no. It's not that at all. We must not ever forget that it's a holy God that we serve, a sovereign God. Because here's the deal. If you take that sort of an attitude, you, you, you still got to deal with the consequences of your sin. How many of you know what the word consequences means? How many of you ever paid any consequences? Anybody paid a debt of consequences in your life? Four of you. Wonderful. Okay. How many know you can be forgiven of murder, but you're still going to prison? God can even take your sin and to get you back to him. He can take your mess up, yes, your royal mess up, and the moment you repent, God can find a way to get you on the path back to him. And what does this say about our God? It ought to just shout within your soul, ringing within your spirit today, our God is awesome. That's what it ought to be saying to us today. How can I say this? I say it because we learn from this story that it took Jacob's big mess to find God. And there is not a better explanation that I have found of this than when C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is so humble that he will take us. Oh, listen to this. Jesus is so humble that he will take us even though we have preferred everything else over him. He will still take you in. Who on earth would do that? No one. Anyone who wants to be first in your life says, I've got to be first and that's it. He is so humble that he will take you, my friend, even though you have preferred everything else over him. Jesus isn't standing before you saying, yep, there you go. No, no, no. I told you to pick me first. Jesus says, I know full well. Oh, this is amazing to me. I know full well that you picked him first. You picked that first. You picked money first. You picked the pleasures of this world first. I know that you picked that before me. But Jesus says this, but if it woke you up that all of that stuff is empty and doesn't satisfy, I will still have you back as my son and daughter. For only Jesus, only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Oh, somebody get him praise today. It's an amazing thought to me. When we are faithless, he is still faithful. When we don't have sense enough to make the right choices, he still says, I'll take that and get you back to me. Bless the name of the Lord. You will never know. You will never know who you really are until you meet absolute perfection. You will never know who you really are until you meet that perfection in, in God himself. And that's why, I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly, that's why the hardest people to come to Christ are the self-righteous. Listen to this from Danish, Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard. He says this, it is so much easier to become a Christian when you are not one than to become a Christian when you assume you are one. How many know that's true? So much easier to become a Christian when you are not one than to become a Christian when you assume you are one. And how many people do you and I know that assume, well, I was raised in church. I know all the songs. I know when to raise my hands. I know when to clap. I know all that stuff. I know the lingo. I know all that. It's so much easier to become a Christian when you are, you've come literally from somewhere in the pit. 
I think the thing that makes this the most clear is how we see the Apostle Paul viewed himself pre-conversion as opposed to post-conversion, the way he viewed himself. Philippians 3 shows us how Paul saw himself before he met absolute perfection in the Son of God on the road to Damascus. He goes through this whole list, and let me just quickly show you Philippians 3. Paul says, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I'm a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And there goes this list of credits, on, on, and on. He says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, oh my goodness, and the law, I obeyed the law without fault. Some versions of your Bible might say, and with that, when it came to that, righteousness, blameless. I was blameless. In other words, that's the way he was, uh, he, the way he lived the religious thing. He judged himself. He was without fault. Same chapter, post-conversion. He said this in verse 12, Philippians 3. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. Basically, he says, you know what I have to do? I have to press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Before he was saved, he was blameless. After he was saved, he realized he wasn't even close to being what he was supposed to be. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, all of us are equally bankrupt. Some of us just haven't declared it yet. Some of us just haven't realized how bankrupt we are. One of the things Pastor Des taught us so profoundly was this. The counterfeit looks good until you hold it up next to the real. The real will expose what the counterfeit is. One of the easiest things in the world to counterfeit is religion. It's particularly easy for those people who happen to be by nature good rule keepers. But counterfeit religion falls completely apart when it's held up to the perfect reality of Jesus Christ. And that's what happened when the, Jesus showed up with the Pharisees. Pharisees were a bunch of counterfeit religious guys full of their own self-righteousness. Then Jesus shows up and he says, it's, that's not righteousness, that's not even Christianity, it's not even a godly life. They were comparing themselves with themselves until he who is absolute perfection shows up in their midst. And now suddenly the people who thought they had it all together realize that they don't have it all together. You see, here's the thing, the point I'm making in all this. When you compare yourself with yourself, counterfeit looks pretty good. But you come in contact with the Son of God, you're not blameless, you're not innocent, you just need forgiveness, you just need Jesus. I said you just need Jesus. Why do you think we enjoy watching all these reality shows and all that stuff? Because they put that stuff on there and you get the privilege of sitting home saying, well, at least I'm not like that. At least our family isn't that messed up. And we get to compare ourselves. But you put yourself up to the standard of the, the living Son of God and you realize that more than ever, you need forgiveness and you need Jesus. So the question today is this, as I close, have you met the living, resurrected Jesus? On several occasions, we've shown the video of Dr. S.M. Lockridge giving a message called, That's My King. And I have heard nothing to compare with the way he presents the living Son of God. If you want to put Christ up and say, here, compare yourself to this. 
he said, with it, he brings a challenge to every listener, churched or unchurched, to examine if you have really had an encounter. Do you know this king? Have you really had an encounter with the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And I close by bringing you a portion of what Dr. Lockridge said one Sunday morning as he brought his message to a close. And as I read it, I'm asking you this question. Have you met Jesus? Have you had an encounter with him? And he says this, my king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. There is no far-seeing telescope that can bring him into visibility because of the coastline of his shoreless supply. He is eternally strong. He is enduringly sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know that, Jesus? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior, hallelujah. He's the peak of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. Have you met that Jesus? Somebody say, bless the Lord today. Oh, he's not done. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick, bless the Lord. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the ages, and I'm thankful for that. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meager. I wonder, do you know that Jesus today? Stand with me as I finish this. Dr. Lockridge offered much more, but he concluded with this. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And then he said, I wish I could describe him to you, but he is undescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him and you cannot live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave could not hold him. That's the Jesus we serve today.